0: If you came today hoping to hear a sermon, good news, you get to hear three sermons today. Yeah. Now, if that sounds like the opposite of good news to you, it's okay. There are very many sermons. Um, The reason we're going to do it like this is because it'll give us a chance to apply what we're reading in God's Word right away, right on the spot while we're here after each section of the text. Uh, instead of doing what I usually do, what many of us often slip into, which is go home, turn on football, whatever else, and forget about it. Um, so I'm going to tell you the gist right off the bat of each of the three sections. There's going to be a section we look at here about doing good, and then a section that calls us to be ready to suffer for doing good, and then a section that calls us to trust the God who rescues those who suffer for doing good. Those are the three big ideas right off the bat. Let me pray. And we'll dive in. And you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, and let the thoughts we all think, be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. The attitude exists, even among some Christians, it goes something like this. I won't hit you first, but if you hit me, I'm going to make you pay for it. At least, at least verbally, right? At least verbally so. Um, call it the attitude of a counterpuncher, right? And there's some maybe idea that we have that there's something maybe noble about this, something wrapped up maybe in the defending of honor, like the father who tells his son on the first day of school, now son, don't start any fights, but you know what to do if somebody comes after you, right? Uh, maybe the grown-up version of that, in Christian circles is something like such and such a corporation has taken the Christ out of Christmas. They're putting happy holidays on their winter gear and apparel, and so it's time for them to feel the wrath of Christian America. We're gonna bring all of our economic might to bear and make them sad that they ever mess with us. Right? The counterpuncher mentality. But what if what if that's the opposite of how Christians are meant to act in exile? Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? Starting with verse 8. As you're turning there, a little reminder, this is the letter of 1 Peter we're working through, written by one of Jesus' disciples, and he's writing to these Christians that whom he says are in an exile type of situation, meaning that this world where they live isn't their home. And it also means that they're feeling themselves being increasingly pushed to the margins in society. Um, in this text that we're going to see today, we're going to see a little more detail about what that looks like. We're going to see that they're being mocked, that they're being ridiculed for the faith. The word reviled is going to be used in this text. The world around them is suspicious about Christianity at best, hostile even. And they're trying to figure out, sort through how to respond to this. And the question maybe we could ask is, in such a situation, is God like the dad who says, don't start any fights, but if anybody comes after you, you make them pay? Is that how our God looks at us, Christians in exile? Let's take a look. Verses 8 through 12 of First Peter chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read. Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling or for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace And pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see three observations here from this first section of the text: first, doing good within the community; then, doing good in response to evil; then, reasons for doing good. They'll just be very brief observations there. So, first, doing good within the community. My family got a pumpkin a little while back. Maybe some of yours did as well, put it on the front porch. Uh, It's been there a while now. When we first got it, my toddler could stand up on it. No problem. It's a firm pumpkin. If we leave that there for a while and my toddler climbs up to stand on it, what's going to happen? It's going to collapse, right? Why? Because sometimes, I guess what that illustrates is sometimes we can't tell how unhealthy something is on the inside until some external pressure is applied to it, right? Sometimes it's hard to tell how unhealthy something's become on the inside until external pressure is applied to it. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on in verse 8. As Peter's readers are experiencing external pressure, he wants to make sure that the inside is firm, And solid. So in verse 8, he gives a series of commands dealing with the inside, within the family of faith. What's it supposed to look like to be healthy and stable? So here's the list. Unity of mind. In other words, there's no time to bicker with one another about minor things, and we ought to be supporting each other through external pressures. Part of that support probably looks like sympathy. So weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, seeking to enter into the experience of one another. Continuing there in verse 8, we have brotherly love, the sort of love that answers the phone at 3 a.m. will give you the shirt off your back. A tender heart, that means caring, compassionate emotions expressed toward one another. A humble mind that isn't puffed up, but rather seeks the good of others. Those five in verse 8 are what makes the pumpkin firm, for lack of a better illustration. It's, it's what leads to the preservation of internal stability That's crucial for the Christian community if we're to survive the external pressure of exile. So that's doing good within the community. Then we have doing good in response to evil. We're living in a day and age, of course, in which people live for epic comebacks, right? So, young people, you know, if if you get roasted on social media, what are you supposed to do? You, You roast that person back, right? Um... That's exactly what you do. Even corporations are getting into that now. So uh, a little while ago, I saw one. You know, remember when IHOP changed its name to IHOB for a while because they introduced burgers and they wanted to be the International House of Burgers? Wendy's corporate Twitter account got on and was, you know, responding to people saying, wow, IHOP is coming for you, Wendy's. They're making burgers now. And Wendy's, their corporate Twitter account, they got on and said, can't wait to try the burgers from a place that thought the pancakes were too hard. And, you know, it went viral. Everybody retweeted it and everything. But that's the way corporations act today. What about for the Christian? Is this the way that we are to live as well? Um, we see it here, verse 9, right? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Let me laugh about Wendy's, but in all seriousness, in the Christian faith, there's no room given for counterpunching. Right? And not only are we not just to avoid counterpunching, not only are we just to avoid counterpunching, we're also supposed to bless, actively bless, the one who's done evil to us. Do you see that there in verse 9? And, you know, I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but maybe the single best example of this that I can remember seeing, maybe in my whole life, was just a few weeks ago, of John's brother, Brant, right, in that courtroom, on the witness stand as his brother's murderer is about to get sentenced. And what does he say? I want the best for you. I want you to accept Jesus Christ into your heart because that will be what's best for you. And he asks the judge to get down and give a hug to his brother's murderer. I, don't, I can't think of a better example of doing good in response to evil. That's chapter three, verse nine in action. But what would possess somebody to do that? That takes us to the reasons for doing good. Brant John's response is not natural when evil has been done to us, when we've suffered. So what would compel somebody to respond by blessing their enemy? There's several reasons. A couple of them are given in the text. First, it's what we're called to, according to verse 9. Do you see that? On the contrary, bless, for, to this you are called. In other words, we have a God who extended grace to us when we didn't deserve it. Therefore, it's not just extra credit for us to extend that same grace to others. It's actually what's required of us. It's baseline Christian faith. Second reason given is there at the end of verse 9, that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. This is a permission, even stronger than permission, it's encouraging us to seek blessing for ourselves as long as we're seeking it in the form of blessing others as a result of blessing others actively. So Peter's here reflecting on this theme of blessing. Blessing that comes to us when we do good to others. And he says, that reminds me of Psalm 34. See that there? That's the psalm that he quotes in verses 10 through 12. It's actually a psalm that Peter quotes over and over again. He loves to quote this psalm. The main idea, if you read Psalm 34, is that God will not ultimately finally bless those who do evil. He will ultimately finally bless those who do good. Um, Now, how that plays out is an important question Will he bless those who do good in this life, or will he bless those who do good in the next life? When will the blessing come? Last week, one of you texted in a question that was similar to that, Um, and I responded to those text questions at the end of service, and I was very, I I came down very strongly on the side of the blessing really is coming in the end, in the life to come. But on further reflection, and reading this passage some more and some other passages, I want to amend that, actually, a little bit, because... There are just so many passages that indicate that we are going to get a taste of the fullness of the blessing in the life to come here on this earth. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know any other way to read some of what I see here in verses 10 through 12. Um, look at the blessings that are listed here, that we would love life and see good days, verse 10. That's surely talking about this life. In verse 12, it talks about God's eyes being on the righteous, his ears open to their prayer. That's surely talking about this life as well. Many, many of the blessings in the New Testament are this life sort of blessings. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to all be rich and happy and healthy, and all of our prayers will be answered in the affirmative, right? Of course, that's not what it means. We are actually promised suffering in this life if we are Christians, but along with that promise is a promise of blessing, namely the blessing that while we suffer, we'll be able to experience joy in the midst of it. While we experience lack, we'll we'll be able to experience contentment even in the midst of lack. Those are the sort of blessings that are promised to us even in this life. So yes, the fullness of blessing is going to be coming for us in the life to come. But we get a significant taste of it in this life as well. And the corollary to that, of course, is at the end of verse 12. That last phrase that is kind of scary when you read it. It says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The reason that's troubling maybe is because we remember that Peter's writing this to Christians. He's quoting this, not just to Christians, but to Christians who are being persecuted. And the fact that these people are being persecuted for their faith doesn't make Peter think that they're off the hook. He's saying, if you respond to evil being done to you by doing evil back, here's what's going to happen. The face of the Lord will be against you. And how does that apply to our situation today? Well, I think about the student. whose friends at school are tired of hearing you talk about Jesus, hearing about your Christian faith. They're starting to mock you. According to this passage, in verse 12 in particular, if you respond to their meanness by being mean back to them, you shouldn't expect a pat on the back from God like, I get it, I would have done the same thing. and Instead, what we should expect is a God who turns his face away, And actively works against us for doing evil much better to keep God's eyes watching over us in protection his ears attentive to our prayers how do we do that well by following what it says here keeping our tongues from evil our lips from deceit and pursuing peace with one another so the the big idea from this first mini sermon is this do good when people are treating you well do good when people aren't treating you well do good and if we feel worried that that will make us doormats, I think maybe the second and third sections of the text might clear some of that up. But even if it did, even if it did make us in some way what the world would call doormats, doing good in the face of evil is exactly what our Lord has called us to. Of course, none of us are perfect in following the commands that were laid out in verses 8 through 12. And so what we're going to do now, if you'd uh, come on up, Robbie, is we're going to have a time of confession that follows the commands of this passage. Because we all fall short, we're going to uh, go through a confession, and assurance of pardon, that comes directly out of the commands that were given right there in verses 8 through 12.
1: I'm going to have you guys respond in the text in yellow. Lord, you have instructed us to have unity of mind, but we confess that we have often sown discord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. mercy. You have told us to show sympathy to each other, but we have been indifferent to the needs and to the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Christ, have mercy. You have taught us to show brotherly love with a tender heart for each other, but we have treated each other as enemies, often putting petty things above your calling to love one another. Lord, have mercy. You have told us to have a humble mind, but we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Christ, have mercy. You tell us not to repay evil for evil. You even tell us to bless those who wrong us, but we confess that we react out of anger rather than love. Lord, have mercy. You tell us to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, but we do just that. Christ, have mercy. Let's pray. Father, all these things that you ask of us are things that, you were, that, that were modeled so beautifully by you. You, pers- you pursued peace with us even though we had wronged you and even though the cost would be so great. You gave us that which was most precious to you, your son. Jesus, you looked upon us in our helpless estate of slavery to sin and you suffered and died so that we could be free and live eternally. Spirit, you now indwell the hearts of those who trust in Christ, enabling us with the power of Christ's resurrection to live in a way that blesses those who curse us, and yet, once again, we fail. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Children of God, let's remind each other of this assurance of pardon from First Peter 3.18. Let's read together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Praise be to God.
0: Amen. So we've looked at our first section, um, calling us to do good. We've confessed the ways in which we haven't do good and done good, and now in the second section we're looking at The call to be ready to suffer for doing good. Ready to suffer for doing good. Are we ready to suffer for doing good? I asked myself this question last week when uh, you may have seen it. One of the presidential candidates responded to a question by saying that he, if made president, would remove the tax-exempt status of North Suburban Church and other churches that believe some of the things that we believe um, if he were to become president. Now... That became a very unpopular thing to say. It was shot down pretty quickly. But even in the midst of that, I ended up thinking, well, is it really that unrealistic that 10 years from now that might be the case? That would force us as a church to do things very, very differently and change a lot of things from the way that we're doing them now, right? But is it totally out of the question that that would happen? Are we ready to suffer for doing good? That's the question that Peter wanted to make sure his readers could answer. So let's pick up where we left off. Verse 13 of chapter 3, Peter's been talking about doing good, now he adds a piece to be ready to suffer for doing good. Look for that as I read verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We're going to see here, just in those verses we just read, uh, whether, a discussion of whether or not we will suffer, and what to do when we suffer, and why act this way. When we suffer first, whether or not we will suffer, Peter says we might actually not suffer for doing good. Do you see that in verse 13? That's how he starts out. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the applied answer is nobody. When that candidate said what he said last week, that's sort of how it worked out, right? Members of his own party rose up the next day and said, that's actually a horrible idea. And that's actually kind of the norm, according to what Peter's saying here, in terms of how things will work out for us. Namely, that if we do good, ordinarily no harm will come to us for that. That's a result of God's common grace that even those who are seeking to pounce on us will be delayed or restrained in their ability to pounce, ordinarily speaking. However, There are exceptions to that, of course. That's not always how it works. Try telling Atatiana Jefferson's family that if you just do good, you won't experience any suffering or evil. Come on. Sometimes we suffer mightily, even though we're doing nothing wrong to deserve it. And actually, sometimes we suffer mightily precisely because we are acting righteously. And Peter knows that. He knows he's writing a letter to people who are about to experience more and more of precisely that. And that's why he says what he says in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. In other words, though that may not be the norm always, it's a real possibility that you'd suffer for righteousness' sake. But even so, even if you are, what does he say will be true? Verse 14. You'll be blessed. You will be blessed. In other words you won't finally be harmed or ultimately be harmed if you do what's good. God won't allow his people to be finally or ultimately harmed. We may lose our money. We may get beaten. We may get imprisoned. Our enemies may even take the very breath out of our lungs. But in the end, what will be true is that we'll experience reward and blessing. So, what do we do? What, what to do when we are suffering? That's kind of the next thing Peter gets into. Listen to these instructions he gives. Remember what we read here. Have no fear of them, the ones who are persecuting you, nor be troubled. But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Some of you have asked me since I became senior pastor, why do we start out with First Peter? Why do we start out with this exile theme? And this right here is exactly why. Over the last three years of being part of this church family, I've gotten to know so many strengths of this congregation. So many beautiful moments I've gotten to witness. So many gifts have come to the surface and so many ways in which this congregation is such a blessing to one another and to our community. However, I felt concerned over the last three years that much of that might get swallowed up in a fear of what's going on in this world around us. Right? What I don't hear, in other words, very often at North Sub, over the last three years anyway, is any sort of um, excitement about the cultural, the moment we're in. that, That we may actually be counted worthy of the privilege of suffering, for the name of Jesus and in that suffering that people might witness something in us that they've never seen before. Instead, what, I'm, what I hear a little bit more, which is totally understandable, totally normal, is something more like panic. That if, if, the, if the cultural winds shift in a certain direction, that we Christians are really in trouble. Peter says, do not fear those people who cause your suffering. Don't be troubled by them. Now we may be like, well, I don't want to fear them, but I just feel like I can't help it. What happens if I can't help it? I think Peter gives guidance here. He says, the way not to fear people is to turn our hearts elsewhere, specifically turn our hearts to Christ. Do you see that? How he goes from verse 14 into verse 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, if we set Christ apart in our hearts, as the only one whose opinion really matters when it all is said and done, then we'll end up fearing him and fearing no other. Do you remember that principle back from chapter 2? What did we say? We said fight fear with fear, right? That's Peter's teaching in this letter. Fight fear with fear, which means that we cultivate a healthy fear of God that chokes out the unhealthy fear of human beings that we all slip into. But remember, though, we're not called into just this neutral absence of fearing people. We're actually called to actively do some things. In verse 15, it's actively preparing to give a defense for the hope that exists within us. Have you done that preparatory work before? Have you ever sat down and really done it? Prepared a defense for someone who would ask you about the hope that's within you? It's important to prepare the way he calls us to because that moment will come unexpectedly for most of us, right? it come when we're least expecting it. Someone might ask us about what makes us different, and what do we say? If we're not prepared in that moment, we could miss it. As we prepare, though, it's important that we look at these guidelines given to us in the verses we just read. You see that at the end of verse 15? How are we supposed to do it? With gentleness and respect with gentleness and respect, this is what bothers me about when I see our fellow sisters and brothers. Um, well, first, when I see this, I see um, a political commentator put out a video saying, if that candidate ever tries to enact that policy, I'm going to meet him at my front door with a gun in hand. Fine, we expect the world to say that, right? But what then's troubling is when Christians are saying, Amen, I'm going to have my gun at the door, uh, in my hands at the door as well if he tries to enact that policy, right? Look at what we're actually called to with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Now let's zoom out here. All this preparatory work to prepare a defense that is saturated in gentleness and respect, all of that time of preparation is only worth it if we're living in such a way that someone would think to ask us a question about the hope that's within us, right? In other words, Peter, by writing this, is assuming that his readers are living in such a way that the people around them are like, what makes those people different? I need to ask them. I just, I just can't, I, I can't figure it out. I need to ask. What, what makes them different? Why do they have that hope? What about us? Does our hope stand out? The unfortunate reality is that the times when our hope is probably going to stand out to the people around us are times when our car gets broken into or breaks down, times when our basement floods, at times when someone that we love dies, times that we're reviled for our faith. Those are the moments in which if people are going to see the hope that's within us, it's probably going to be in those moments, something different. And if we can respond with good conscience without staining our witness with rudeness and disrespect, do you see what Peter says will likely happen? Verse 16, that brings us to our final section. Why act this way when we suffer? One reason is that those who revile will be put to shame. Do you see how he says that? Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ maybe put to shame. I go back to this illustration one more time, not to beat a dead horse, but because it is a recent illustration that depicts this so well. That candidate who put that out there saying, hey, there's gonna be a belief test if I'm president, and if you pass this belief test, you get tax exemption. If you don't, you don't. Why was he put to shame by the members of his own party? If you followed the dialogue at all, it was because Christians do so much to help the poor. That was the argue, those were the arguments going around. Like, hey, that's actually a terrible idea, Mr. Candidate, because if you put that in action, the poor are the ones who are going to suffer because Christians are out there helping the poor, these churches, these Christian organizations, and they wouldn't be able to do that to the same degree anymore. That's the way it was in the early church too. Do you know that? At times in history when Christians have been known for doing good, especially for the poor, um, the powers that be think twice about reviling us or they think twice about how far they're going to take their reviling, right? So I mean, the easy application for us today, um, easy to draw the connection anyway, is to project share, right? You've been hearing about it for the last month. Many of us, just by virtue of where we live, can go a week of our lives without face-to-face interacting with somebody who has significant material need in their lives. That's just the reality of the world we're in. However, within just a 20-mile radius of us, there's a great deal of material need. And Project Share is the primary way during our church year that we as a church— seek to see that need and step into it and enter into it and be good neighbors to our community. It's been going on for years here. And we partner with organizations that are on the ground, living it out day after day, that have needs. And this is a big lift to them, and we can provide these meals for them at Thanksgiving time. And so I just want to remind you, today is the last day to pledge for that. If we needed one more reason to pledge for Project Share, besides all those that have been given in the announcements over the past month, Peter gives us another one here, I think, and it's this. By doing good for the community, it removes an excuse that people have to revile us. It may even lead those who want to revile us to be put to shame when they make accusations against us and the community rises up in our defense. One more note before we wrap up this section here there is a second reason given here to act this way when we suffer. It's in verse 17. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Why would there ever be a choice between suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil? I think what Peter's getting at is that it's possible for us to respond like jerks when people revile us, right? Then they take our jerkish response and then they revile that, right? Now we're not suffering for doing good. We're suffering for the evil that we did when we acted like jerks. Peter says that's not admirable at all. Far better to suffer for doing good, if that's what the Lord calls us to. And that's the big idea here in this section. Be ready to suffer for doing good. And no, we're not saying be eager to suffer for doing good. This isn't a call to masochism. Peter says in verse 17, right, if it should be God's will. We're not seeking it out. But if God does call us to it, that suffering will often be an opportunity to witness to a world who's never seen something like the hope that's within us. Are we ready to suffer for doing good? Let's get ready to suffer right now. Let's actually put it into practice. For the next five minutes, here's what we're going to do. You're going to take a pen or pencil. There's probably one in the chair in front of you if you don't have one. If you don't have access to a pen or pencil, you got permission to take out your phone, start a new note on your phone, don't check those texts, Don't check your fantasy football lineup. And we're going to take five minutes right now before we move on to actually take the time to prepare a defense like we're called to in verse 15. Peter tells us to do it. Let's do it instead of going home and forgetting about it. It says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is something that's going to be between you and God, something you can keep to yourself. But you're thinking through for the next five minutes, what if somebody asked me, Hey, where does your hope come from? I just got to ask you, what, what makes you so different? How would you respond to that? It's worth this time to do some preparation there. So let's take five minutes and think that through and jot down some thoughts. We've had some conversations here before about this phenomenon of wanting to be on the right side of history, wanting to make sure we're not on the wrong side of history. It's hard to think of somebody who was ever more seemingly on the wrong side of history than Noah at that moment when he's building this massive boat in the middle of dry land talking about a flood that's going to cover the earth and everybody's making fun of him. Or than Jesus as he's carrying his cross his instrument of torture and death up skull hill who's ever been more seemingly on the wrong side of history but peter points precisely to those two in our final section of our text as reassurance to the christians in asia minor who maybe were worried themselves about being on the wrong side of history would you turn to verse 18 now in first peter chapter 3 as we read our last Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. We have here Christ's example, Noah's example, and then how God rescued Christ and Noah. First, Christ example, that's verse 18. Peter's been talking about our suffering in verse 17, and then he relates that to how Jesus suffered. Now, of course, there are similarities and differences between our suffering and Christ's, right? Peter jumps in with two differences right off the bat there in verse 13, verse 18, if you notice. Christ's suffering was for sins, F-O-R, sins, uh, meaning that it removed our sins from us. Our suffering does that for nobody else. Also, Christ's suffering was substitutionary, we might call it. That's what Peter means when he says the righteous for the unrighteous. It means that one righteous person took the place of all the unrighteous people and bore our sins in himself when he hung on that cross. In those two ways, Christ's suffering is categorically different from ours. But if our suffering was not similar to Christ's in any way, then I don't think Peter would have connected verses 17 and 18 the way he does when he goes from our suffering to Christ's with the words, for also. He has to be imagining some sort of connection. And I wonder if the connection is just something like this. That both Christ's suffering and ours bring people to God. Now, not in the same way. Right, of course not in the same way. Christ's suffering brought people to God in terms of opening a door to access to God that was never open before. However, hasn't what Peter's been saying all along in this passage pointed to the idea that our suffering communicates something to a watching world? that somebody who watches us suffer and suffer differently than most people suffer and they see the hope that's within us might lead them to wonder what that hope is and want it for themselves, and thereby it might bring them to God. So I think maybe a summary of what's going on here in verse 18 would be something like this. Christ also suffered, just like you're being called to suffer right now. In many ways, Christ's suffering is in a league of its own, but it's similar in that just as his suffering brought us to God, our suffering can bring others to God. Then in verses 19 and 20, Peter moves on to Noah's example. Now, this is a notoriously confusing text. Um, When you read it, you might have been like, what in the world? I didn't know this was in the Bible. There are many plausible interpretive options to what's going on here. I wish I could survey all of them and talk about why I land where I land. But unfortunately, all I'm going to have time to do right now is to just explain the interpretation of this passage that I have found most convincing I've been convinced of this by uh, Wayne Grudem. This is the, the perspective that he advocates for. Here's how it goes, okay? So have your eyes here in, in verses 19 and 20 so you can follow what I'm saying. The spirits in prison, verse 19, who are those? According to this understanding, my understanding, these were the humans in Noah's day who rejected what Noah was saying and rebelled against God. Okay? They are now in prison, meaning that they're in hell. When did Jesus proclaim to those people, though? Okay, so if that's them, great. But then when it says that Jesus went and proclaimed to them, when did Jesus proclaim to those people? Well, Jesus was preaching through Noah in Noah's day. Now, that might seem a little bit far-fetched, but when we consider that Peter has already said in this letter, that Old Testament prophets were speaking through the spirit of Christ, he calls it. And when we consider that in 2 Peter, he calls Noah a herald or preacher of righteousness, using the same proclamation term here. Um, It's not so far-fetched anymore to think that Peter is picturing the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking through, his spirit speaking through Moses to the people of his day, warning them against the judgment that was to come. And all throughout that time, While Noah's building the ark, verse 20, God's patience is waiting, waiting for people to turn to him, giving people a chance to repent and turn from their sins. Now, whether or not that's the correct interpretation of what's going on here, in any case, Peter is referencing in some way the days of Noah as relevant for his readers. I think there are many reasons for that. Again, Wayne Grudem has laid out several that I thought were helpful. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. Peter is speaking to the people of his day, saying that they're in the same situation. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Peter is writing to his readers, saying, be the same. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. Peter is calling his readers to that same sort of bold witness. Noah trusted that God was certainly coming soon. Peter is calling his readers to trust, and he says it several times that God's judgment is certainly coming, and perhaps it will be soon in our case. And finally, God is patiently awaiting repentance from unbelievers before bringing judgment on the world, just as he was in Noah's day, according to verse 20 here. A lot of connections between the two. But what's the ultimate purpose of Christ's example and Noah's example in this passage? I think it's this, that God rescued both Christ and Noah. Noah. First, Noah's rescue, at the end of verse 20, Peter talks about eight persons being brought safely through water. So Peter's connecting the rescue of Noah through the waters of the flood to our rescue, which is depicted in the waters of baptism. When someone gets baptized, we get dunked under the waters, right? Under which we would die if we stayed there. And then we're raised up again to... Survive or in another perspective to new life. So, does baptism save us then? A lot of us maybe would think the easy answer is no, but look at verse 21 baptism saves you. What's clear here though is that Peter's not speaking of the external rite of baptism as though that's the real deal, right? Because he says it's not about the external, it's not about Um, how does he say it, the removal of dirt from the body, but rather it's what that external reality points to on the inside. He talks about the inside when he talks about an appeal to God for a good conscience. On what basis might we have a good conscience as we get dunked under the waters and raised up to new life publicly in the moment of baptism? Well, that's where the Noah and Christ and baptism stories kind of come full circle there at the end of verse 21. When Peter says that the way we get this good conscience is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's how that all gets connected. I think what Peter is saying is that just as Noah was vindicated through the waters that showed him to be on the right side of history, for lack of a better word, the waters that saved him and his family in the boat while the others perished, so Jesus Christ was also vindicated when he didn't remain in the grave. But... God the Father rose him up from the dead. And that's the vindication that really matters for us because as we get dunked under the waters and lifted up in our moment of baptism, we're doing that on the basis of the fact that we believe that in a spiritual sense, we have been buried with Christ and then raised with him to new life once again, that we're united to the one to whom all powers and authorities in heaven and on earth bow according to verse 22. So maybe a summary of verses 18 to 22 is something like this. Noah was vindicated, even though it looked like he was on the wrong side of history. Most importantly, Christ was vindicated, even though it looked like he was on the wrong side of history. Because of Christ's vindication, you will be vindicated as well, if you're united to him. So maybe three takeaways from that, that flow out of this text for us. Let's be bold in our witness, like Noah was. Like Christ was. Let's be confident that Christ, even though there's only a few of us seemingly in our world that believe in Christ, let's be confident that God will certainly save and vindicate us. And then finally, let's remember that just as the flood eventually came, just as God said it would, final judgment will certainly come as Christ triumphs over all the evil powers that exist in the universe. The big idea here for this final mini-sermon is trust the God who rescues those who suffer for doing good. Trust the God who rescues those who suffer for doing good. We said it it would be hard to imagine someone looking more like they're on the wrong side of history than Noah building that boat or Christ on the way up Skull Hill. But when the rains came, Noah was saved. When Sunday morning came, Christ was vindicated. And in those moments of vindication, there was no longer any doubt that they were on the right side of history in the way that meant the most. Our, our, our moment of vindication is coming. When Christ returns, cracks the sky, comes back for his own, it will be seen by all living creatures in all the universe that we too. were on the right side of history because we're united to the one who owns it all. Let's pray, and we're going to finish by uh, singing a song together. Lord, we thank you that we do not need to be confused about where history is headed. There's a lot of mysteries in this life, but you haven't kept the end of the story as a complete mystery to us. We know how it's going to end, and it's going to end with you triumphing over all powers in heaven and on earth that oppose you. It's going to end with a great wedding feast in which you welcome us, your bride, in as your own into a marriage that will last for all of eternity in the delight of the Trinity that we've been yearning to experience for the duration of our worldly existence marked by suffering. Lord, sustain us until that day. Give us hope. Help us not to waver in the face of suffering. Help us to be ready to suffer, and when it comes, help us to see it as an opportunity that we eagerly embrace in hopes of being a witness to those around us that we love, who need to see the hope that we found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.